Hi everybody and welcome to the Golders Podcast, where we aim to sprinkle particles of knowledge by engaging and educating. With your co-hosts, father and son duo, Keith and David Mayer. We're excited to have you on this journey with us and we know our wide variety of world-class guests will provide lots of value for our listeners. To ensure you stay up to date with everything we've got going on on the podcast, make sure you subscribe. In today's episode, we welcome on Ryan May. Ryan is currently the head of coaching at Aston Villa, but he has spent time working at numerous levels at several clubs, including Chelsea, Rangers, West Brom, and also the Football Association. Ryan also featured quite heavily in our book, Goldust, How to Become a More Effective Coach Quickly. He has some fantastic stories and insights, and we know you're going to enjoy this episode. Ryan, welcome and thank you for your time today. Today's episode of Gold Dust Podcast is about going back to home base. And what we'll be doing is filtering out and delving into what is meant by that. Ryan will share with us some of his wonderful experiences within coaching and coach education and developing players. But before we dive into the conversation, Ryan, I'm just wondering whether you can share a quick summary of your background in coaching. Yeah, no, firstly, thank you for inviting me on. Um, oh, it made me think, actually, Keith, because I actually I think back, I'm getting old, you know. Uh, 22 years now I've been coaching um, within employed coaching. 15 of those years, uh, I've been fortunate enough and privileged enough to um, be an FA tutor as well across a number of the awards. Started my employed coaching journey after graduating from university. Uh, and I was very fortunate enough to walk into uh, a job at Chelsea Football Club within the community programme. Uh, a wonderful, enriching uh, few years there, working across oh, every aspect of the game, across the entire spectrum from disability, grassroots, women's and girls, development centres, community programmes, social inclusion. Um, so as a, an early sort of exposure to coaching, it was, uh, it was a wonderful gift uh, within that job um, I was fortunate enough to uh, move a little bit further north um, when I left Chelsea I went to Glasgow Rangers uh, spent a lovely couple of years up there in the very nice cold weather and rain um, that was a, a very uh, enlightening time they, they love their football up there it's very intense um, spent a lovely bit of time up there working again within the community programme but having a little bit of a joint more role with, uh, with the academy um, moved back down south a little bit towards the Midlands, uh, worked at West Brom. Again, as sort of started to do a bit more of the role that I'm doing now, as sort of head of coaching and workforce, but working quite intensely within the academy as well. That obviously evolved into full-time academy work. Um, spent sort of four, five, six, seven wonderful years there, then moved to the FA, um, working within the professional game coach education team. Um that's like a university degree, really, going back to uh, see lots of people in all their clubs and getting all that exposure and learning. I was the one supposed to be helping them, but I sort of felt a bit like a thief. I was probably taking a little bit more um, from them than they probably were from me, which was sort of quite fortunate for me. Uh, very privileged to get some exposure to national teams um, all the way through from 15s up to sort of the first team aspect. So again, just a, a really enriching time for me as a coach in my development. Um, fortunate enough then that went to go back to uh, West Brom as head of coaching. Uh, spent three years there, 
uh, and then very recently uh, I've just made the switch across the Midlands uh, to Aston Villa Football Club in the same role. So uh, quite a varied up and down the country type uh, journey. But um, yeah, that's where I am. Lots of experiences, Ryan. There's no doubt. And I think that accumulation obviously keeps you, keeps you busy and obviously helps the cohort of both players and the coaches that you work alongside at your current club at Aston Villa. In your, in your own coaching journey, though, Ryan, can you shed some light into how you've evolved and share some key changes in your beliefs around what coaching actually is to you? Yeah, I suppose the education pathway that obviously we were brought through, Keith, it was a methodology that was very much around teaching and instruction. Um, there was a, a certain way of, of doing things um, and, and it very was much about um, trying to teach the players something. Um, whereas I think now it's evolved for me personally throughout the, the journey that I've had. I, I see myself now more uh, as a catalyst rather than a teacher. Uh, and what I mean by that as a catalyst is um, I hopefully with some of the input that I provide will help uh, advance and speed up that process for the player. But it's not down to me, the distance or the journey that they're on. I'm just I'm just a part of that. Uh, I'm not driving it, which is probably the perception when I was a younger coach that that was my role, to drive things, to make people better. That's still part of my role, but now I realise my place within it. Yeah, it's an interesting one where you use the term catalyst rather than teacher. Let's peel back some of the onions here. What, what specifically do you mean by that? If I'm a teacher, then it's almost like standing at the front of the class and, and I'm in control of the flow, the momentum, the content, um, and, and how quick we learn, how far we go within a, an allotted time period. Um, and I think, I suppose now by being a catalyst, it's very much um, a we, not a me. So the players are involved. There's far more player ownership. Uh, there's a lot more involvement as a together piece rather than necessarily me driving stuff. So it's a lot more complex, a lot more in-depth. Uh, and for me to be an effective catalyst, I have to be quite adaptable to meet the wants and needs uh, of the cohort in front of you. Do you feel that's actually helping to develop the players? You know, from when, uh, when you first started coaching 22 years yeah. ago, do you feel the players have benefited significantly in the current way that things are being done? Um, I think that's quite harsh. I think that probably implies that in previous generations, players were probably stolen or, or sort of hard done by a little bit. Uh, and I don't think that's the case at all. I think basically what it is, is education evolves, education changes. And therefore, you have to meet the needs of what's in front of you. And you have to be more adaptable and more sort of evolutionary, really, in the way you work. I suppose back in the day, even when I was sort of uh, running around, you would, you would expect to behave in a certain way. So um, you would expect to go to coaching, the coach would tell you what to do, you'd listen, you'd apply yourself and you'd, you'd sort of hope that you would start to get better. Um, now though, it's like a little bit that, and I suppose my coaching journey evolved when I became a parent as well, Keith, in the fact that I had a different view on the world. Uh, I had a different undertaking of how my own child developed at home. So I had a greater in-depth and understanding from that perspective. And I, and I remember a little one where uh, I was sort of starting to think, and it was a, it's a pivotal story in my mind, my son was sort of uh, at primary school and one of the things they were doing was teaching him how to negotiate. Uh, so they would basically say, so he, he had what they call an open flow classroom. 
So he had a voice and a choice of what he wanted to do within within the classroom. So he could go and do the play stuff in that corner or he could go and do sort of the reading over here. So he had a choice of what he did within his day. And I suppose what he did is he started to bring those behaviours at home. So when I asked him to do things like, you know, can you tidy your room or can you put those toys away? Um, is it okay if I do it in a minute, Dad? And I'll go, well, no, I'd like you to do it now. Um, well, that's not very fair, is it? <laughs> and it's almost like you go through that process in your brain. It was kind of like I would, if, if I was told to do something, I'd get it done. I wouldn't <laughs> dream of, of trying to negotiate. So um, it's, it's that empowerment and the way that they've been taught, the way that they've been tried to have a voice. And I suppose it's, they expect a voice now. Um, so it's making sure that you meet the expectations of, of how they learn, how they want to learn and, and the world that we're around. You know, I remember the computers that I had at school with the BBC ones. Now you've got, you know, iPads, laptops, everything that's, you know, they're just, it's just the new world of a new way. It's their expectations of what they need to meet their, their sort of, and get gratified of what they want to get from it. I know we had some really enlightening conversations in the building of the book. There mm. was something that you said every time we spoke that really stuck in our minds and it did feature heavily in the book was you talked about returning to home base in relationships. Can you yeah. expand on what you mean by that? Yeah, I suppose one of the things that I've always tried to do is, especially as a coach developer, you, you, you can't, you, you're not always in touch with the person day in, day out. You, you get to sort of interact with them at strategic points throughout a week or throughout a, a sort of a month type aspect. So you, you're constantly replugging yourself into that relationship. It's not like you see that person every hour of the day like you do with your family at home. Um, and what I mean by sort of revisiting home base is every time you get sort of in baseball, that analogy, you get a home run, you get points. So every time you revisit home base, if you do that often enough, you gain more success. And I think sometimes people take for granted the relationships that they have with people and they don't pay enough attention to them. They don't try and visit the things where they started in order to sort of uh, replenish and enhance the initial relationship that they had. And I suppose certain things that I've developed uh, that I do with players and I do with coaches is I try and label the types of relationships that I've got so that I know what I've got to revisit. So I almost like establish what home base is, if that makes sense. So I've got sort of four ones in my mind. I've got uh, the bottom level parasite, uh, service level provider, um, professional uh, and family. Now that's the home base, if you like, um, definition, if you like. So I know what I've got to revisit. Now in my mind, a parasite is, there's only one person that's going to benefit from that relationship with regards energy. So I know if I'm going to work with someone that's parasitic, I know that they're going to try and drain me. I'm not going to get anything much back from them. Their wants and needs are to just rinse me. And that's okay, but I've just got to know what I'm walking into in order for me to service that relationship effectively. Um, service level provider is quite a light touch. It's a bit like when you ring up because your broadband's not working the person at the end wants to get your broadband working and you want it to start working for you. So there's no real wants and needs other than you've got something you want to achieve. You've both got that similar goal. It gets achieved and you walk away. I don't know anything from them at the end. I don't know anything about me, but we both feel quite contented that we've achieved what we wanted on that, that period of time. Professional, I think you go that one step up. Uh, I think you start to invest a little bit in wanting to know something about the person. They've got a vested interest in knowing something about you. Uh, there's some common goals, there's some common drivers, um, and you start to get to know them a little bit more with some depth. Um, but that professional piece is you still sort of 
you, you play the game, you do the dance, you know what I mean? So there's still areas of impression management, I think, within that sort of um, professional type relationship. And I suppose the family one is you sort of, you can fall out, you love each other, you hate each other, all in the one thing, and but you just know that it's, it's quite a safe relationship. You can visit that as often as you like, and that's probably the one that is the easiest to want to try and get to. And people think it's the best one, but not necessarily. And I, and I say this a lot to our coaches, we still have to produce the dickheads in the system because they've got talent. You know, you've got some people say, oh, yeah, but he's, he's a poor character. You know, he's not, he's not going to make, well, actually, he's got talent. So ultimately, we've just got to invest the right amount of energy and appropriate relationship to that to, in order for that person to sort of get what they need from it. Um, so that's what I mean by visiting home base. It's making sure that I've got some sort of clarity around what relationship I think we've got that's defined and make sure that I, I visit and pay attention to the things that I need to keep that relationship healthy and in touch of what I need it to be and what they need it to be. Question around that. So you've mentioned the, the four levels. Yeah. What do you do and how do you know where you're at? What do you do when you're starting off to find out what level you need to be at? The service level provider one's the easiest one because very quickly when you go in, you can establish that from a question. So it's a case of you can go in initially, you go, you know, what is it you want to achieve today? What does success look like? Uh, and they'll give you an element of an answer. So you can work service level provider very simply. You don't have to invest too much in it. You can work towards making sure that both parties walk away quite content. And I see a lot of coaching with players done that way. Um, and, and it's quite superficial because the coach walks away thinking, well, that was a good session. We got what we needed to do with regards objectives. But you haven't really brought anything into the player or understood what they want. You've just got some commonality that you've achieved and we walk away. It's a little bit, I suppose, like a community program. You provide a service, don't you? You know, you bag of balls, you go in as an after-school club, you know what you want, they're happy, you're happy, crack on. So that's the easy one to, to sort of establish. The other ones are a little bit harder. Um, and I think they take a little bit of time for you to figure out. So it's a little bit like when you go on a, on, on a date with someone, you're trying to just fathom out, you know, what they want from it, their personality, what they're going to try and get from you. And uh, the parasite one becomes apparent probably quite quickly after one or two interactions because it's all very much about them. They, they want something from you. They're, they're very keen to get it from you. It's that sort of kid that's constantly wanting your attention, constantly trying to get some, something from you without necessarily investing something back. You see it at all different ages. It manifests slightly differently at YDP and PDP. But ultimately, it's a very selfish-driven desire to get better or to take things from you, to rinse you. So that one probably surfaces easier after that. I think if the parasite thing doesn't sur surface after the service level provider bit, then you're probably starting to work towards a professional type relationship. You're sort of into that sort of stage that there'll be a little bit of give and take on the conversation. People will start to take a bit of an interest in you. You're taking a bit of an interest in them. And I think that's predominantly where academies try to start to work with their players to know that just under the surface, what's, what's about the player, what makes them tick. And then the family stuff, I think, evolves over time. If you spend enough time and you invest enough of revisiting that home base, then those family-type relationships um, establish just naturally and organically from that professional-type platform. That's great. And we wrote the book based on the importance of building connections, but we've also made it clear, and you've touched on it very well there, that not everybody's after the same thing. No. You're not going to build a solid relationship with everyone you work with. I know there'll be people in better situations that can build a relationship, but there are some really good points in there. But I'm going to take a little turn now.
Mm-hmm. He's currently head of coaching at Villa, Ryan. Can yeah. you give us some insights into what that role entails? Oh, crikey, yes. Yeah. So it, it probably comes in a, a couple of different parts. You've got one part of the head of coaching role, which is uh, a line management responsibility to uh, meet the club's needs with regards curriculum, philosophy, culture. And, and your part in that is to help, again, keep the momentum of that, keep things aligned, make sure that you're working towards, I suppose, the academy and the business goals, if you like. The other side of it is, is sort of person development. So it's about investing in the people that are trying to develop themselves within their careers. Um, and a bit the bridge that bridges the two is the stuff that the person delivers on the grass to try and achieve the club goals, as well as trying to achieve their own goals. Um, so it's, you wear sort of three different hats. When I sit down and have a, a CCF or development action plan meeting with a coach, that's, that's about them as a human being. That's about their development, what they want to work on. Now, obviously, that we're doing that within a framework of, of coach development within the club, which means they can be selfish to work on the things that matter most to them and that will improve them. But my job then is to help them prove that the investment of time from me and the club in themselves is going to have some complementary benefits back to the players that we're producing within the club. Um, now, if the wants and needs are slightly unbalanced then my job is to try and balance whether or not the person should be focusing more on their wants or more on the needs of what we perceive and the club will need from them. So it's that sort of game of seesaw that I've got to try and play with them to keep their motivation, to keep their momentum, to keep them sort of moving forwards. Um, so it's quite an enjoyable role, to be fair. Every day is slightly different. Um, I think it's the, uh, the best role in academy football for the fact that I think I get my cake and eat it. Um, I'm, I can get to work with players. I can get to work with coaches. I can pick and choose between the two. Um, yes, that there's there's accountability aspects to it, but ultimately, I, I get the best of both worlds. So I can't I can't grumble at all. When we met, we were talking about the book, and you talked about your interview that you had. Yes. When you you went in and you made a point how in two years or three years I can't remember the exact time frame that that you wasn't going to be needed at the end of it. Yeah. That was your end goal. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, so the statement, they asked me to put down what uh, sort of a KPI would be for the role. And I basically said that I think that within three years, you should be able to make me redundant. And what I meant by that was, it's very nice that these types of roles exist. And, and I find that I'm in a very privileged position to be able to try and support people's journeys and be a guest within that process. But it's also quite sad in the fact that people are needed in order to do that. So... My job, I think, is to try and establish the skill set and the confidence and the competency for someone to be able to understand what development looks like so they can stand on their own two feet. So, obviously, when I said to them, listen, I'm not looking to do myself out of a job, but the question, there's two questions I want you to ask them. First question after three years is, do you need Ryan anymore? Hopefully, the process and the framework that we've built, they'll be able to answer you, no, we don't need him. The second question I want you to ask is, do you want Ryan? Now, if they say yes... They see value in me as a person. They see value in the framework and, and the structure that we put in place in order to help them develop. Then I think we're in the place that's quite rich because they know how to develop themselves, but they're looking to seek and add value from the people that they feel are complementary to it. They're not driven or spoon-fed by having to need me in order to do it. There's a quote that my dad has used, and it was actually the head coach that was at St. Helens Rugby mm. Club used as well was, this was with players, but do your players play for you because they have to? 
or because mm. they want to. And I think that ties in with what you're saying. Do they need you or do they want yeah. you? Do they want to work with you? And I found it fascinating when you said that. So I just wanted to jump in and touch on that during this conversation. I, I, I think ex- the, the statement that the, the gentleman from St. Helens made is exactly the same uh, ethos and methodologies that I'm trying to, I suppose, put across with, with the coach development piece. 100%. I think if you, if you manage to get into that environment that they want to play for you, or they, they, they want you in there as a guest into their world, then, then I think that's a very happy place. I think that's when we're stepping that relationship home base stuff into, uh, I think you make the step from professional into, into family. And it links lovely really into building connections. I know in, in chapter two of a book, it talks about building a connection. And you mentioned in our, in our interview when we first met about know, you, know yourself first. You know, what, what does that mean to you? And really, what relevance does it have when you're working with players? I suppose it's, it's about wanting to make connections. So again, it goes back to that, that type of relationship that you want to build. If, if you understand what you want and need from the session, you understand what your coaching brand is, uh, and, I, and I sort of use inverted commas for that as, as a brand, because um, what I mean by that is you understand your personality, you've got an understanding of your... Uh, your own selfish wants and needs. You've got an understanding of your strengths and your weaknesses. Um, you know the areas that you feel more comfortable and less comfortable in doing. By having a lot of that understanding of self when you then walk onto that grass, I think you've got, you're in a better place in order to establish connections and relationships with the people that are going to want something from you in the job that you're going to do. I think if you go in a little bit uh, naive or blind to some of those things, then I think that you'll miss opportunities to make connections or you'll misinterpret those connections, mainly because you lack of understanding in yourself. Sure. And of course, the, the significance for the players in terms of their, their growth could be quite significant if we get it right. And then on the flip of that, if we don't get that connection piece right, then it's, it's like wearing a pair of shoes that don't fit you. That building of the connection, the, vi- the vital aspect of all of that is how do you go about doing that? It's tough. I, I often find that a lot of young coaches feel that they've got all the answers. And I suppose the bit, if, if, the bit I try and say to them is if you understand yourself better, you'll start to, for me, realise that there's no one's got the copyright and all the questions are all the answers. So it's trying to understand that and understand that actually there might be a young player in front of you that is better than you ever were as a player at 10 uh, and potentially knows a little bit more about the game than you at 10 years old because they're super elite. Um, and I think that's the fortunate position that, especially within uh, academy football, that you're privileged enough to potentially find yourself within. Um, now, if you understand yourself and you've got a strong understanding of self, that's more of a comfortable thing to rationalise and get to grips with than it is if you're a younger coach that thinks you've got all the answers. And that's not... Um, hammering younger coaches to think they've got all the answers far from it because you only know what you know um, and, and the longer you spend uh, experientially developing yourself then the greater insight you get into your brand and your your understanding of who you are what you can bring to the party and what what areas that you need some support within um, which is why within our club we don't we don't work on competencies with regard to skills uh, we look at competencies and, and start to ask the question how much time have you got invested in it and now you could be good, bad or indifferent at it. I just want to know how much experience you've got in undertaking that competency because I find it far more important for them to reflect on that piece 
than it is of reflecting on how good I am or how bad I am at it. I remember you, you know, you came across somebody that mentioned the following. It's don't listen to the story. Yeah. Listen for the story. And, you know, yeah. that intrigues the life out of me because you know, I want to delve in a little deeper about what's meant by that. Because maybe that does link to the previous question. It was when I was up in Scotland, my, my lad was quite young at the time. He's sort of, I think he was two or three. And obviously he liked me reading stories to him. And I wasn't ever great at sort of reading stories. I didn't quite put the actions into it. So I sort of, I wanted to uh, be a better dad for want of a better terms. And I wanted to be able to read better stories. So I went along to the library and there was a storyteller, almost like giving like a bit of CPD on, on storytelling. And it was, it was from that, that that statement was said by the author. Uh, and it was a case of when you're trying to read the story, don't try and make the person listen to the story, make them listen for the story because then they can sort of run away with their imagination and fill in the gaps, but they're still attached to um, the connection that you've got with regards you reading a story to them, but they've got an element of ownership to where their mind goes. If they're just listening to the story, they can only go where you take them. They can only ever get enlightenment to, I suppose, the, the creativity or, or the picture that you paint. So what I try and then transpose, and that stuck with me for a long, long time, and I think, well, okay, if I'm now coaching kids or working with coaches, often I'll be picking up cues and triggers and listening to stuff. So my eyes and ears are picking up things all of the time. Now, if I'm only listening to the story, I'm missing some of the stuff for me and I'm potentially limiting um, them being able to listen for the story if I'm just telling a story. Does that make sense? Yeah. So yeah. It's, it's that piece of trying to establish uh, a space where people are, uh, sometimes have to listen to the story because it's refined and it's narrow focused, uh, or also then opening up and allow them to listen for the story um, and almost like go away on their own little bit and use their own imaginations and crack on that way. And um, so that's what I mean by listening to and listening for the story. So in terms of the listeners, do you have any stories or examples that you can share with us when you've been working with either a coach or player where the benefits and the, the, the trade-offs could be significant if we don't actually apply principle of listening for the story? Yeah, so I think a nice simple one is when, when I used to work with coaches around uh, obtaining their qualifications, it was very simple to listen to the story. They want to get through the award so you can keep it quite superficial but if you listen for the story and you start to unpack it you can then start to understand where they want to take that qualification to go do they want to be a, a phase specialist are they currently in the foundation phase but want to work towards being in the pdp or first team so if i just listen to the story i know whether i want to achieve their a license and, and I'll, I'll support them around that but i'm missing so much if i if i listen for the story then i can better tune myself into the support guidance, framework, whatever they need from me in order to take them and give them added value towards where they want to go. Because if I didn't and I just switched my ears off, then I'm not sure that I would have best given them the support they required apart from signing them off and giving them a bit of paper. Yeah. Again, I'm going to change it a little bit. So you've mentioned you're currently in your role. You mm -hmm. get the best of both worlds. You're working yeah. with players and you're working with coaches. And for us, we believe situational awareness is, is a critical skill to develop. Yeah. What strategies do you use personally to tune into what's happening in front of you and what's happening around you? Oh, that's a really good question. I suppose every time I step into an environment, whether I'm coaching or I'm working with a coach or 
observing whatever it is that I, I suppose the hat that I'm wearing or the role that I'm undertaking. I suppose the things that are whizzing through my mind, through my ears, through my eyes is I'm trying to get a perception on some of the things that I think are quite pertinent towards supporting or holding back what I want to achieve. So things like time, the space, the meaning, the context, all of those things I'm trying to, I suppose, reconnaissance and gather as much information from what's in front of me in order to then better make some informed decision and sort of professional judgments against what I need to do, if that makes sense. Because it's, it's quite tough because it happens almost like without thinking about it. Um, so it's quite tough to nail down, breaking down a process of exactly what is it that you do when you go into that situation. But I suppose I, when, I, when I had the question through and I was thinking about it, they're the things that are popping in my head, little things that I'm trying to just figure out. So for example, if it's time, um, am I getting towards the end of a 15-minute session with the players and they haven't quite got it? And am I now trying to take over and shoehorn in some information because I need to get to where I need to get to? Or actually, in the context of where we are and the players I'm working with, is it okay just to let it drift and we can go for an extra 20, 25 minutes? Or, you know, or actually, even if we finish it now, it's okay. We don't need to achieve the success criteria today. You, know, you start to pick up players' sort of body language and bits and pieces and think, actually, have I spent too long on this? There's clues and bits and pieces all of the time within the environment. The simple one around space, around your practice designs and whether you're getting the the repetition, the relevance or the realism you want. The meaning behind what people say to you, how they're engaging with you. So the classic one, I remember doing a bit of work with a coach recently and one of the things they were worrying about is when they asked the question, the players didn't speak. They never gave anything back. And he said, why is that? And I watched him a few times. And I didn't really have the answer and I didn't know. So I just asked if you minded if I, I took the group and I asked the same question and I wasn't trying to be clever. I think at the period of time, I wasn't even thinking about it. I just, I had a period of silence and I think we got to about a minute, minute and a half and no one had said nothing. So I'd ask the question, I'd pull people in, I'd ask the question. And after about 60 seconds, people started to feel uncomfortable. And one of the players chirped up and said, are we going to play? And I said, yeah, but I've asked the question. I said, if you don't know, just say you don't know. And that's fine. And they went, well, we don't know. I said, well, let's go and play then. So they played. I brought them back in a few minutes later and asked them the same question. And within seconds, they started like popcorning. They were giving me all the answers. And I suppose our reflection that myself and the coach came to after some discussion was actually, it was just they wanted to be listened. They wanted to know that they were actually going to be listened to. Not, not the fact that the coach was just going through a process. And I think what we learned from that is actually... If you ask most kids, most things is sort of thing, they'll, they'll go, well, if you shut up, he'll just, you know, he'll tell us in a minute because he'll get fed up before we get fed up. So just be quiet and we'll get playing quicker. They'd almost like become the trained behaviour through the coaching process that they'd started to, to learn rather than actually knowing that they actually wanted to be listened to and the coach was actually really prepared to spend that time to listen to them. So all of those things are situational awareness. He's trying to pick up those clues that the... the and the triggers that are being given to us all of the time, but just, I suppose, trying to have a series of markers in your own mind that help you make better informed decisions. And listen, we, I'll probably get it 90% wrong most of the time, but that 10%, if you do start to get them some things right, I think you get a bit of momentum. And it comes with practice as well, I think. You touched on it, Ray. You, you'll have experiences, you'll get it wrong. Mm. You may get some of it right. The things that come with practice, they come with experience, they come with getting it wrong, learning different ways to do stuff, because there are many different ways. I'm going to twist it again now. 
we hear a lot of this new school, old school coaching, what we did in our day, whether it works now, whether it doesn't. What are your thoughts around that? It's the same school. It's the same playground. It's the same buildings. It's just different pupils in it. So the old school and the new school, they're the same. Nothing's changed with regards to the fabric. But the people in it want to take something different from it. So we, we have a lot of the time. So a lot of the work that we do at the minute, I've, I've got two or three years of, of in-depth data on uh, what I call heat maps, um, where I map the coaches and code the coaches' communication. And a lot of the time people say to me, oh, is there a right or wrong way? Are you happy with the heat map? And it's not about me being happy. So people say, oh, you know, he's, he's quite command, isn't he? Well, yeah, that's absolutely fine. Because if that's his super strength uh, and he understands better how and when to use it, because he's tuning into the player, some of the stuff we spoke about, he's making the right relationship connections. He understands where he needs to put the limitations in on that. It's the same with a trial and error coach. You know, it's, you need a balanced diet. Too much trial and error, the players get pissed off with that just as much as they get pissed off with being stopped every two minutes. You know, there's, there's a fine balance that you've got to play. Um, and I say a lot to my coaches that seesaw is a shit game if you play it on your own. If you're always one end and you're delivering it one thing, even if you think it's right, eventually people become frustrated or bored or predictable with it. So you have to understand that you have to be adaptable, flexible, and start to go back to that situational awareness and start to read what the environment, what the cues, what the triggers, what you're listening, what you're seeing to make those fine tweaks and amendments. And I suppose that's the, uh, the craft of the coaching piece, isn't it? It's that ability to to navigate your way through all of the aspects that are being thrown at you. Yeah. And there are different, you mentioned it then, right? There's same building. Yeah. It's the same game. We're still yeah. using that one ball with two goals. Yeah. They're just different people. And these people that are coming through the doors now have access to different things in life. Yeah. They, 20 years ago, kids might have gone outside and played on the street. Now, they may play Fortnite or they may play on the PlayStation. And I, I think there's little point in us saying, well, 20 years ago, I, I, I never did that because we didn't have access to it. And things are changing. The world's changing. People are changing. And I think it's important for us to adapt and to understand the people that are walking through the door and understand yeah. what makes them tick, like you mentioned. We take that one there about the like the PlayStation aspects and, and like the FIFA generation. So I might have spent more time doing some deliberate practice out on the grass and so my techniques might have been um, slightly more honed, but my tactical understanding was was devoid because no one ever spoke to me about formations, positions, understanding. I never had a tactical stance on it. Um, you play FIFA now, they all know positions, they all know formations, they all understand tactics. Now, so that trade-off that they're giving may be within um, maybe losing some hours of, of deliberate practice technically, they're gaining with some tactical understanding and insight. So as long as, like I said, that seesaw is, is someone said to me the other day, do you prefer like a curver, a Brazilian soccer, that type of stuff, or do you like a games-based approach? And I just said, well, listen, I'm not sitting on the fence, but I like a balanced diet. If I want to lead a healthy lifestyle, I need a balanced aspects of what I'm going to get from it. I can't be one or the other. And I said to the person, listen, if I eat a million oranges, would I get fat? And they went, well, no, oranges are healthy. I said, listen, if you eat a million of anything, you're going to get fat. It's excess. So you can't have too much of, you can have too much of a good thing is that old saying, isn't it? 
So I think a lot of the time it's just, it's just making sure that we allow the, the, the children to have that new exposure to the new school and in inverted commas, but without forgetting the old school principles that the game's still built on. It's still a, a, a directional practice. You know, it's got one goal. It's got 11 players at the business end against 11 players of opposition. So the rules haven't changed. There's only 17 of them. They haven't changed for over 150 years. So we're still in that old school building, aren't we? But again, it's just people that are running around differently. And we just have to understand that sometimes certain things will overdo. Sometimes we'll undercook them. We just got to try and constantly be making sure that we meet the needs of those, but not looking at anything as a negative. Because again, FIFA, a lot of our players are tactically more in tune because of FIFA. So that's a benefit. Now, is it a benefit if they're playing at 15, 16 hours a week? Probably not. So that's where that seesaw bit comes in and they need to get a better balance because they can't be ta- technically inept but tactically superior. They need to have that balance. You know, having that balanced diet of what would be perceived by many as the old school mm-hmm. and obviously the, the new wave, the new school and integrating both of those together is obviously of a benefit for the players and, and the game. Mm-hmm ultimately but going forward right what qualities will the coaches of the future need to learn i suppose the world that we're walking into and i just try and think of the 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 sort of evolution that i've had to undertake technology is not going away it's only going to advance it's only going to make our life better and how much that impinges on grass time but i think future coaches need to be very technically savvy because the people that in front of them are going to be so their wants and needs of quick access to information that's slick, that's professional. It was quite funny because we start, some of the coaches have started to use iPads, but his, his battery had gone and he used his tactics board. And, and a few of the comments from the players was quite funny. Um, one was called Caveman. So he's like, well, what's, what's that? why were you using paper? Where's your iPad gone? I don't want to use, I don't use a tactics board. <laughs> so it's, um, and they, they were taking the mick out of him a little bit, but it was nice because it was, it was that sort of uh, jovial stuff. But, that, that very quick snapshot of the players will want certain things. They'll keep driving the bar. They'll keep raising the bar. So it's how adaptable and flexible we can become. I think a future coach probably needs to be more comfortable and knowledgeable in ideologies. And what I mean by that is your psychology, your physiologies, all of those aspects. They probably need to have a more rounded understanding because I think at the minute we're still in some parts allowing people to work in silos because they're the specialists, you can crack on with that bit. I don't need to know about your graphs and your data because I'm the coaching bit. I think as we evolve, those um, will become less uh, siloed and more integrated. So therefore, our understanding of how we each work and what our areas of specialty are doesn't mean you're going to know all the answers far from it, but you might have to have a little bit of understanding in order to slipstream yourself in behind the specialist at that point in time, but still be part of the journey rather than letting drive on and then hand over to you so I think they're the the areas for me that I think coaches will need to consistently have their eye on the horizon for for me the game's the game it'll evolve you'll have different game styles different tactics it's quite cyclical so the essence and the core culture of what we do I don't think will necessarily change too much and the game's obviously been proven to get bigger quicker stronger I often think that there's going to become a point where that's got to stop. You can't keep getting bigger, fitter, quicker, stronger players. So is there again going to be an evolution into um, quicker thinking players? And, you know, it's like most things, isn't it? There, there's evolutions, there's styles, there's trends. So we've got to be adaptable. We've got to be flexible. And we've got to have a, 
an eye on the future. But one thing I will say, though, Keith, is um, I think in order to understand the future, you've got to have a very strong understanding of where you've come from and your past. Because how can you predict the future if you don't really understand all the stuff that's come before? So for me, I always encourage the, the coaches to understand evolution and where we've started. A classic example, we've done two bits of CPD over the past sort of 18 months, two years. One on pressing, which they feel is a modern phenomenon and that the Germans and Klopp invented it and Guardiola. And I started to, we did a little bit of a historical journey around it. It came from ice hockey. And then we started to show them um, the Dutch from the sort of 70s, like almost like en masse, like the, the cavalry just going and swarming this Argentine team and they didn't know what to do. So pressing is not a new phenomenon. It's just reinvented and, and sort of re-established of where it fits in today's game. Um, playing out from the back as well again. Oh yeah, that's a that's a, a modern trend, isn't it? Well, no, it's not a modern trend. It winds me up to say it's a modern trend. It's not. It's it's just been reinvented. You go back to uh, the heydays of Liverpool and bits and pieces. Listen, they played where the space was able to play. The team dropped off. They played out from the back. The tree, team pressed them high. They clipped second pockets or went slightly longer. And um, so the game's always been that way. It's just how you interpret it. But if you don't know, because you can't bother to look back, you don't know where you've come from to where you evolved to. So spotting those patterns and trends, I think, is key. So look back to go forward. You know, the evolution, checking where we've been mm. so before, the during, and then the after bit, which is the future. It obviously is very proactive from coaches, the current coaches, people like yourself, and I'm sure there are many others that are similar but different. Now they think, and then helping to support our coaches for what the future might might bring we don't know because the future doesn't exist i think your point in knowing who we are but particularly where we've been because that obviously is a to coin one of your terms is a form of an heat map it creates evidence for future development and we evolve and then we adapt to meet that need of what we believe to be the the future what is it likely to be so preparation now is obviously going to help develop the players for the future for whatever the game is. And it's a goal one end and two teams and the outcomes are, unless there's radical changes within the rules, which is doubtful. Yeah. I think it's very uh, bright, very perceptive. And I'd like to be present to some of those CPDs that you run, by the way. They'd be outstanding. <laughs> no, they weren't, honestly, they weren't that very good, mate. <laughs> we, we, had a good, we had a good debate. We had a good debate finding stuff out. <laughs> oh, we like a debate. We like a chuckle. We like a debate. That'd be very healthy. <laughs> listen, I always say to people, listen, I, I just ask lots of questions and I poke and prod. I, I've definitely not got all the answers and I definitely don't know everything far from it. I'm, I'm very shallow in that. Um, and and I, I need to definitely grasp a lot more and learn a lot more. And I think that hunger is the bit that is, is that inner drive, isn't it? To consistently want to know more, learn more, get better. And I think if you surround yourself with people like that as well, it just helps you. Completely agree. And that hunger and desire to learn, to want to know more, and that's in any field. Mm. If, you're, if you're a scientist and you, you want to find out something new, you've got to spend time around the people that are in the know. It's the same with coaching. No man is his own island. It's important to have the knowledge and good people around you, but also to be unique and authentic in what you do. And you've shared some fantastic points today Ryan but I've got one more question for you if you could go back 10 years what yeah. advice would you give your younger self oh. <laughs> what advice would I give myself just one piece <laughs> <laughs> well, fill your boots 
right, okay. <laughs> Don't chase money, let money chase you. It's something that, bless him, my, uh, my dad used to say to me a lot when he was with us. It's, it's about being patient. Uh, and I think a couple of times I've probably been a young man in a hurry uh, and trying to chase things to get that next step, that next uh, accolade, that next qualification, that next promotion uh, in order to, to have that money. And I think with hindsight now, knowing what you know and knowing what you want to know, patience is quite key. And I think if I, I would have probably encouraged myself to just slow down a little bit, consolidate a little bit more of the knowledge that I'd gathered along the way yeah, that would be my advice. But it's, it's, it's strange, really, because I wouldn't change anything I've done. I think the journey I've been on has shaped me who I am. So um, I'm not sure I'd probably want to give myself that advice. I'd, I'd, I wouldn't want to spoil the discovery that, that I would have gone on. Ray, from me, I want to thank you for your time today. And I, no, I also want to thank you for your, your input in the book. The book itself has been very well received, but it wouldn't have been possible without the people that provided the input and you were very influential in that. And there were many conversations that we had that I learned from. So again, thank you for, for coming on today, but also thank you for the, the things that I've learned off you and keep sprinkling the gold dust. Well, it's very kind of you to say, but um, now nah, listen, I, like I said before, when I had that job at the FA, I think uh, I see it as an opportunity to steal things from other people and I probably took equally, if not more, from the conversations that we had uh, with you sharing the bits and pieces of all the great people in the book that you've spoken to as well. So um, I feel very fortunate and privileged to uh, have contributed and first and foremost to be asked. Um, so thank you. And for all the listeners, I endorse David's, what David's actually mentioned. For someone that I have met over a long time, you're extremely grounded humble and, and knowledgeable and the ability to want to learn, adapt, adjust and continue to be progressive and proactive is a skill. It's an art. It's, or is it, is it something where you, you're wired that way or can you learn that? I don't know. I don't, I don't know the answer to that, but again, I endorse and thank you ever so much for creating the time to come on Golders podcast, you know, in these unprecedented times that we all live in. You know, mm -hmm. we were sat around and twiddling thumbs and reading or cutting the gardens and then getting ready to do, I know you're, you know, one of your favourite pastimes, which I am definitely going to take you up on at the nearest and soonest opportunity, uh, and that is fishing. So, yeah. listen, mate, thanks again. Really appreciate it. Take care and hope we'll get to see you very soon. I look forward to that. Thank you, Dave. Thank you, Keith. Thanks for tuning in to the Golders podcast today. If you enjoyed this episode and you haven't already subscribed, please do so. Your continued support is highly appreciated and it means so much to us knowing that the content that's being produced is providing value in people's lives. If you would like to know more, or get more information from us, you can follow us on Twitter at Gold Dust Podcast. And also, you can visit our website at www.golddustmentoring.com. Thank you, everybody.